the shock of the future. We are facing uh, a future that is much more complex than anything we've seen before. Uh, we try to answer our challenges with simple answers. It, it, it is not possible. We will have to learn. We will be pushed into learning by, by the reality or we will go there voluntarily. But before discovering what the next stage consciousness, what the next stage, uh, let's say, evolution uh, stage of the humanity calls from us, uh, it might be, let's say, a painful uh, process. Uh, we take so much advance uh, in uh, all kinds of uh, human affairs, uh, technological, social, and so on, but we don't see that much progress in education. Because education is something that um, you live through, that implies a direct human connection. And unless you are a practitioner educator, you cannot uh, think about the future of education. I, I would like all of us to uh, think about is, what if there were no uh, schools or universities? What if we had to create uh, the learning system that supports human beings um, beginning in 2021. What, uh, what would be our design? That it supports the holistic learning, it supports the whole person learning. So it needs to engage our um, uh, intellectual side as much as our emotional side, as much as our bodies, as much as our abilities to relate to one another. We know that life is changing so fast that it's better for us not to prepare uh, our students for what has been in the past, but let them uh, co-design and co-create uh, the future that we anticipate. We learned from COVID, and I think we need to recognize this, is that it showed us that the system is capable of change. It showed us is that uh, when we try to do online learning by just uh, transferring uh, the, the, let's say, the traditional school practices uh, into new media, uh, the whole process collapses. Uh, see, okay, there is no monopoly of school anymore in this online space. So. Uh, a student can uh, shut down the teachers. When we uh, deal with uh, individual and collective um, success stories, they are not um, determined by statistics. We are not uh, statistical cases. We are individual fates and, and stories that unfold uh, as life quests. Uh, it's, it's the critical mass uh, building needs to be also very smart because we need to uh, engage influencers, we need to engage policy makers, uh, impact investors, and so on and so on to really proliferate this new paradigm. The ecosystems of assessment uh, for, with, with different perspectives that measure your, uh, uh, your cognitive abilities, your emotional abilities, your uh, uh, physical abilities and, and even your, uh, let's say, deeper psychological abilities.
Welcome to the Learner Space Conversations. My name is Gabriel Scheid, and I'm here to host a space for change to finally happen. Every episode, we'll be hosting thinkers, authors, speakers, educators, entrepreneurs, and why not, even dreamers, those who, in the words of D.H. Lawrence, live their dreams with open eyes and make them happen. Today, we have a very special guest, Pavel Luksha, who's joining us from Moscow and Russia. Pavel is a systems thinker and educational futurist, a designer and creator of futures. And uh, hopefully Pavel will, will share with us what we can do in our domain, in our world of education, for the change that people like himself and many others are thinking about to actually be materialized. How are you, Pavel? How's it going? Thank you, Gabriel. Uh, it's going quite good. Tell us about your your life's work and mission for, for those who are not aware of how people like yourself are working to develop these, these futures that we hopefully try to teach students to acquire. Uh, so I was born and raised uh, in uh, late Soviet Union. And actually, Soviet Union was on many accounts a very advanced country and uh, education was... Uh, one of its strengths. And so uh, when I was a kid, I was lucky to participate in some of uh, very interesting, uh, most inspiring experiments uh, that included uh, uh, a lot of complementary education, teaching uh, kids uh, things like uh, inventive thinking or design thinking. And it was 1980s. Um, and I had a, a, my first mentor who taught me online in the beginning of 1990s, before uh, the web. So when I grew up, I realized that uh, I participated in, in, in the actual future of education. And I realized that uh, the world around me is uh, far from that. And uh, I thought that uh, we take so much advance in uh, all kinds of uh, human affairs uh, technological, social, and so on, but we don't see that much progress in education. And so I uh, decided at some point that I want to help education evolve to become a true, uh, not only a, a true match for what we live through in the 21st century, but to live to its own mission, which I think is, is the... Um, to really help the, the societies around the globe uh, uh, to advance, to evolve in a much more conscious way. And so that was my, my main uh, driving inspiration. I thought that it's really necessary for us to think about the future because when we teach children, uh, we actually prepare them for the future. When they go into school uh, at the age of six or seven, uh, they go into a cycle that lasts 15 years. And now look look at how life around us changes so rapidly. Uh, definitely in the next 15 years will not look that, like anything we've seen before. So how can we anticipate? How can we make uh, education anticipatory? That was uh, uh, the beginning of my quest. And that's why I thought that uh, uh, developing methods that help educators think about the future and um, become more proactive about it is so much, uh, is so important. Pavel, you've written or, or been a part of teams that written some breakthrough reports on, on the future of not, not just education, like 
Future Skills 2.0. You lead the Global Education Futures Initiative. Uh, you've written and developed extensively about learning ecosystems. Tell us, how how do these reports and think tanks come to exist? Who who makes up the team that, that develops these reports? How, how does that happen in the real world? Mm. Well, when we think about, when we contemplate think tanks in general, we, we tend to think about analysts uh, that look uh, at the world from, let's say, ivory tower perspective. But I think this is not possible when you deal with um, things like education, because education is something that um, you live through, that implies a direct human connection. And unless you are a practitioner educator, you cannot uh, think about the future of education. So uh, part of my own evolution was uh, to really become an educator. And uh, because I believe that the future of education is lifelong learning, um, I work with literally all ages, uh, from uh, young uh, children to adults and senior people. And uh, people that participate in, in this, what we call think and do tank, are uh, the same kind of people. They are innovators, they are system thinkers. Uh, they try to reason um, what will be like the next stage education given all the developments in, uh, in our society. And uh, I also want to underscore that um, we are not a government. Uh, um, institution, for example. We are not uh, a privately funded uh, uh, organization. We are an independent NGO, and we usually uh, work on, uh, we do a lot of work on pro bono basis, we do a lot of work on uh, contractual basis, but usually with uh, some international organizations like uh, World Skills, uh, an international movement dedicated to promotion of skills. And uh, it's really important for us to hold this independent position. To, on one hand, to be really in the middle of the change that is happening in education and to connect with, uh, uh, with people on the ground uh, and be people on the ground. But on the other hand, to remain observers, not being, let's say, hijacked by different agendas, but really try to look at the whole picture, at the larger picture. And, and that's what I think... Uh, the future of this, what I call think and do tanks is. And that's what I think uh, some of the uh, leading institutions that try to help the evolution of education need, uh, need to, uh, this is how they need to approach the situation. I was very fortunate to read several of these reports uh, back to back. And like we usually do with all our episodes, we will include links to, to these reports in our in our website so that our our followers can can not only listen to this conversation, but also follow up on these things. But Pavel, um, if you had to give us a, a, a three-minute summary of what this vision for the future is, I know it's hard and it, you've done uh, you know lots of work in this, but could you summarize this for us, for our audience of educators? Where should where's the world going? How how's education going to evolve to accompany that? Well, uh, first thing I, I, I would like all of us to uh, think about is what if there were no uh, schools or universities? What if we had to create 
uh, the learning system that supports human beings um, beginning in 2021. What, uh, what would be our design? And uh, of course, um, when I think about uh, uh, the, the thing that uh, John Comenius did uh, back in uh, the beginning of 17th century, he really crafted the model of uh, the class and lesson uh, based on the most advanced uh, methodologies of his time. So we, we need to do something similar. One thing is that, of course, the future, the, this, this model needs to uh, accompany human beings for life. Uh, it needs to support different modalities of learning and different styles of learning, recognizing that uh, there is a, a huge diversity in, in preferences and motivation based on uh, different, uh, different learners. It, it needs to be much more, let's say, uh, learner-centered, learner-oriented, and uh, put, put learner at the center and uh, see all types of learning experiences. And we know that we learn by experience much better than by anything else. They need to be uh, designed in a way that it supports the holistic learning. It supports the whole person learning. So it needs to engage our um, uh, intellectual side as much as our emotional side as much as our bodies, as much as our abilities to relate to one another. So different types of intelligences, different types of, um, of, uh, of ways of learning. And uh, uh, so, so when we think about what we call learning ecosystems, this is actually a possibility to implement uh, such models where different learning providers and different learning um, uh, uh, formats and, and even tools, uh, including uh, uh, most advanced ones, such as, for example, artificial intelligence, they're so, sort of uh, woven into a tapestry of opportunities for learners that support uh, human beings throughout their life, uh, helping them to overcome um, uh, challenges that we are facing at different stages. Um, so I would say it's about uh, supporting lifelong holistic learning, uh, experience-based, uh, learner-centered, agency-oriented, empowering, uh, inclusive, um, and I think also uh, opportunity uh, generating and, and future feed, because we know that life is changing so fast that it's better for us not to prepare uh, our students for what has been in the past, but let them uh, co-design and co-create uh, the future that we anticipate. And all of this is possible through new uh, or maybe very traditional uh, ways of learning uh, that include uh, games and, and play and um, uh, um, like, let's say real uh, project-based work, um, all kinds of things that uh, help us experience life in its fullness. Well, and uh, maybe yeah. last but not least is that the role of teacher in this uh, uh, environment needs to shift from someone who is like a knowledge holder who tries to educate uh, towards a more uh, mentoring, supporting, encouraging, motivating uh, type of uh, educator. That's a brilliant roadmap for what school should be. Absolutely brilliant. And I don't think any well-meaning educator in the world could disagree with anything you said. 
And yet, I hope so. <laughs> no, no, no. I, you know, I, I dare somebody to come and mm. dispute anything of, of what you just said, outlining a vision for the future of learning. And yet, overwhelmingly, schools all over the world, I wouldn't say they are the polar opposite of what you've just described, mm. but they are eons away from even approaching that reality. Why is that? Mm. Because it's, it seems well, schizophrenic. Me, it's, it's like a, a collective it, schizophrenia. It, it is. And uh, this has been one of uh, perhaps the central uh, question in my own uh, quest uh, for the future of education. Um, so uh, what, what I think is happening, there are, there are, there are multiple reasons. Uh, so let me give, like, like, I think it's more like a nested reasons within reasons. So let's uh, peel that onion, so to say. Uh, and I think uh, when we look beyond uh, um, things that seem to be uh, more obvious, like for example, some uh, uh, politicians tend to say, okay, we don't have uh, the right generation of teachers. They are not prepared to teach in a new way. We need to retrain them. We need to prepare new teachers. That's the problem. I don't think problem is with teachers at all. I think teachers are uh, really, um, let's say they they are um, they are potent and they are um, uh, absolutely able to start uh, teaching and learning and co-learning in new ways. Uh, very few are, are rigid not to do it. But uh, the problem is. Uh, Let's say le, le, the, the second layer that I would, uh, of this onion is, is, I think, the system. The system of in, institutional system, which uh, sort of pushes teachers into what uh, the organizational sociology call the, calls it iron cage. What is an iron cage is, is when you try to create a new kind of uh, organization in any domain, uh, you will eventually discover that they all tend to look the same. If you try to create a new kind of hospital, or if you try to create a new kind of media, over time, they will look very similar to other kinds of hospitals or media. Same thing with schools. Why? Uh, they give three reasons. So one is uh, normative. It's very, very important. It's, it's that the norms uh, are usually set by the law, define that uh, we need to do such and such things. And this uh, uh, limits our schools. And I think in, in places like Russia, which is very... Uh, let's say government oriented and where the public schools constitute 99% of uh, all uh, schools in, in the country, uh, government plays a, a, a hugely important role. And even in, in countries like the US where the, the proportion is uh, very different, it still uh, plays a normative setting role. And, and where uh, that role, for example, is played by things such as uh, uh, standard uh, testing, or the, the, the system of payment that uh, teachers get uh, and the system of grades that uh, they can, through which they can progress. So that's, uh, let's say, the first pillar. Uh, but there are, there are two more. The second one is set by expectations uh, that uh, the outside world, um, uh, the outside world knows what this education is. So, for example, parents, they come to teachers and say, we want academic success because we know what the, the good school used to be 20, 30 uh, years ago when we were young. So we want you to give the same to our kids. Because they are not professionals, they don't understand that uh, uh, 
uh, schools need to start teaching differently and they just push schools to to go back to all the practices so this is uh, the second aspect now the third aspect is is called uh, mimetic in uh, in uh, organizational theory what it means is that teachers themselves really also remember how good schools are so they replicate the practices that have been done before them so if you think about these three types of of let's say constraints it's very very hard to deviate from uh, uh, the models that we already know and uh, even if they, you try to deviate um, I think the problem is that uh, there are there are no good templates uh, uh, that that uh, governments, for example, can be certain of. So that uh, then we go to like maybe the center of the problem, which I think is this um, uh, mentality set by the industrial age and the Enlightenment, where the idea of standard education emerged about uh, two three hundred years ago. The idea was that everyone needs to have the same knowledge. Uh, the knowledge uh, is constituted of certain, let's say, aspects of what uh, human beings need to know. And that code has been uh, designed in 17th and 18th century. And this is, includes things like uh, reading and writing. And, and this is what we call literacy and arithmetic and so on. And, and basically, this is what we still replicate. So uh, unless um, the idea that we allow uh, human beings to become very, very different. If that idea starts to root in, in the mind of uh, politicians, in the mind of employers, in the mind of everyone, um, we will not devi deviate from the model that uh, we call industrial model, which is all about standard uh, worldview, standard processes, standard outcomes, and uh, standard everything. So I think the the route the route is there. Was COVID a holiday or 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 did we learn anything? Well, I think. Uh, f well, first of all, I think uh, COVID uh, uh, was uh, both. It, it was a a, a a holiday and a wake up call. Uh, uh, first thing we learned from COVID, and I think we need to recognize this, is that. It showed us that the system is capable of change. Uh, I, I will give you statistics because I think I think it's remarkable. Um, so over six weeks in in March and April of 2020, about one and a half billion students, 90 over 90 percent of the whole uh, student population in the world, uh, went into remote learning, and over a billion of them went into uh, different kinds of, let's say online or technology enhanced learning. Over six weeks, six weeks. This, is, this shows like, okay, everyone says that uh, schools may be the most uh, rigid or the most conservative institution in the whole uh, uh, society, but they are capable of very rapid change if that becomes necessary everywhere. So I think uh, this just indicates that the problem is that they don't know where to change and why they need to change. So they prefer to go back to, let's say, or good old uh, ways of uh, handling things. Um, next thing that it showed us is that uh, when we try to do online learning by just uh, 
transferring uh, the, the, let's say, the traditional school practices uh, into new media, uh, the whole process collapses. Um, we are not able to hold motivation of students uh, through online means. Uh, it's completely ineffective, uh, maybe most of all, because uh, uh, both teachers and students recognize how much it is a waste of time. You really need to de dedicate online time to much more intense, uh, interactive, engaging, empowering learning rather than to uh, tell, uh, let's say, uh, lectures over, over internet. It doesn't make sense. So, uh, so changing pedagogy becomes essential and, uh, and everyone needs to start to recognize it. So I think what's, what really happened, and, and maybe last thing that I think is, is, has also happened is that um, when, uh, when everyone transferred into this new mode of learning, they started to see, okay, there is no monopoly of school anymore in this online space. So uh, a student can uh, shut down the teacher saying like they had uh, an application flow or whatever and go somewhere else and do something more interesting. So the new and uh, learning environment needs to take that into consideration and to recognize that all of us are connected. We have huge opportunities for learning everything, we need to take care of each other's motivation, we need to really engage each other, create different, let's say, rhythms that are not the same as uh, in offline schools. And uh, I think what happened is that there is um, an implicit learning, even if we go back to old schools, they are not uh, the ones we used to know, because everyone had this experience, for good or for bad, and everyone will continue learning uh, politicians now know that it's possible to very quickly reform schools, create them, uh, make them into much more digitally enhanced. They are going to do it. Um, uh, teachers know that they uh, need to change their ways of, uh, of working with students. Students know that they have so many more opportunities by uh, using this media and so on. So I think uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a holiday, but a holiday with a, with a reason. <laughs> Yet I, I can't help thinking as you as you mentioned this, and, and it's it's again uh, very very clear, and I couldn't agree more. That as we s sort of tentatively transit the the return to physical schools, I can I personally can feel like the gravitational pull of things going back to the way they were, and despite having experienced this and being forced to innovate because of the pandemic. Um, there's a there's like a like a visceral need to go back to the old ways. Mm -hmm. um, what can we do to to prevent that from happening to a full extent? Mm. Well, I'm I'm thinking also of uh, some experiences of um, older people I know who went through COVID and wanted to have their lives changed after that. They said, we need to take care of our bodies more, uh, <laughs> yeah. have better relationships with our family and so on. And um, let's say they, they are getting pulled back into the, uh, the old ways. <laughs> Again, like, like uh, there is a wake up call, but I think a, a wake up call it's in itself is not enough. And I am, uh, I am an idealist, but I am a, an, a, an informed idealist. Uh, there is a joke, but what is the difference between a pessimist and an optimist? And uh, they say that a pessimist is an informed optimist. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So, so I am. Um, I uh, when I started this work about the future of education, I was uh, an optimist, and now I am an informed optimist. So I, um, I know, for example, that to anticipate a rapid change uh, in in education uh, is is naive, uh, but not to anticipate it is. Uh, uh, is almost a crime <laughs> because uh, the situation that we are facing, um, we are now only talking about COVID, but uh, le let's uh, admit uh, uh, just a uh, few days ago, uh, the United Nations published uh, this new report from the Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change. The, the evidence from that report uh, is a huge, like three and a half uh, thousand pages uh, it says that we need to basically start changing old, all ways, uh, all kinds of uh, spheres in our society. And we need to relearn as, as a civilization the ways we, we relate with the planet and between ourselves. And uh, this is what our work has also been dedicated to. When we, when we talk about the future of skills, we think uh, changing uh, our uh, our skills and our competences, including what we call life skills, is absolutely indispensable um, if we um, if we want to uh, live through the 21st century. That's 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 the stake. Uh, uh, and and uh, so everyone who recognizes it. Uh, needs to start acting. And now, uh, like I said, it's very hard to, the, to, to deviate from the old ways. So I think what needs to start happening is that uh, we need to start, and that, that, that is also happening, we need to start recognizing that uh, a lot of uh, people that want this change are already there. And they are doing experiments, they're, they're working, they want to work with each other, they learn each other's ways. And I think we're right now in the middle of creating that critical mass for for the change to be happening and uh, I, was, I was going to ask you exactly about yeah. that uh you, you've done a lot of work on learning ecosystems which of course uh follow the organic metaphor and then evolution and um you were you were saying about people who are innovating in the field who are trying to be uh developing different practices now mm. many of them don't survive Many of them, like, can can you comment on you know on this organic metaphor of evolution? How long will it take? Are there any critical factors that we can play to accelerate evolution? Because I'm afraid that many of these people who are uh, becoming you know the the aberrations of nature that later lead to evolution are are getting killed. They're not engaging in survival of the fittest. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling now between my, uh, let's say, scientific mind and my uh, uh, changemaker mind. Uh, from my scientific mind, I can tell you that uh, this is inevitable um, because that's part of evolution. Not everyone survives, so we cannot guarantee. But my changemaker mind says that uh, uh, this should not stop us and actually... Um, uh, when we uh, deal with uh, individual and collective um, success stories, they are not um, determined by statistics. We are not uh, statistical cases. We are individual fates and, and stories that unfold uh, as life quests. And I think that um, um, uh, anyone who engages in the change 
does it because it's it's very meaningful. It's not because they uh, they want to bet on uh, let's say most successful uh, uh, stock in the stock market. They they uh, this is not about uh, successful investment. This is about uh, engaging in something that may be the one of the most meaningful things uh, that happened to us uh, in our in our careers and our lives. Uh, and I think that, um, uh, so that's one response. I, I, I think it's not uh, the best response because it's, uh, it, it says, okay, you need to struggle and eventually you will survive. But there, there is a hunch uh, because I think this critical mass has a, a contingent, like, a, like a, 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 a kind of um, containment effect, but in a positive way. Um, because um, uh, the, the, the idea spreads. And uh, once uh, someone uh, creates something inspiring, in, in, inspiring uh, other people start to, to catch it up. And, and this is where the power of networks uh, uh, becomes important. Uh, and, and so I think uh, creating these networks uh, locally, nationally, internationally is one thing that helps uh, these individuals survive. Uh, next thing is that um, uh, we, need, we, we gradually uh, engage uh, people who have resources and who have opportunities and, and they lean on the side of, uh, of experimenting and creating uh, different, uh, let's say, learning environments at scale. Uh, the scale that uh, is operable right now is uh, usually regions. So we're talking about uh, cities or um, or regions sometimes what they call bioregions because uh, the, the good region for let's say future economy and future society is something that coincides with natural um, environments of, of ecosystem that live in that area. So it has to be aligned with nature. But uh, uh, this is happening all over the world. I, I can tell you hun hundreds of stories uh, of experiments of different scale from small networks of a uh, few hundred people to uh, large-scale uh, whole regions uh, in, in Europe, uh, in Asia, in Russia, elsewhere. Uh, and so I'm, I'm very optimistic here. I think uh, it's, it's the critical mass uh, building needs to be also very smart because we need to uh, engage influencers, we need to engage policymakers, uh, impact investors, and so on and so on to really proliferate this new paradigm. In one of your other reports that you co-authored, uh, there's a preface written by Andreas Schlager, who's the director of the OECD. I think he's a, he's a visionary. He's, I've heard him speak even live several times, and I, I think he's a, he's a very eloquent speaker also for, for the future of education. And yet I cannot but feel that um, the, the creation that he has, he has spearheaded, PISA, has done more harm than good. Can, can you comment on that? Uh, <laughs> good question. Um, very challenging question, I would say, because on one hand, um, okay, um, uh, I think may, I might <laughs> win uh, more enemies than friends by saying this, but I, but, but I think uh, some kinds of uh, measurements uh, in our systems are in inevitable, uh, because when we talk about... Um, um, so I, I think the assessment uh, that we knew, the assessment that was used uh, in the world 
for example, in the beginning or the, the middle of the 20th century, uh, was measuring pr for primarily intellectual, uh, let's say, capacities in the in the most simplistic way. Uh, assessment evolves. Uh, it still uh, uh, it still is a kind of cage uh, that doesn't really uh, capture all kinds of uh, diverse human beings that we need to become. So in the future that I envisage, uh, assessment evolution of assessment uh, should be. Uh, the um, uh, uh, perhaps uh, it's it's one of the keys to the future, maybe uh, one of the most critical ones, uh, because uh, when we talk about pedagogies and everything, we still are talking about the institutional dimension. The institutional dimension operates on these norms, and norms are getting set by also by measurements, like like assessments. So some kind of assessment is necessary. The future that I think will be there over time, maybe in uh, 20, 30 years, will be uh, a multidimensional, very complex uh, systems of assessment, maybe ecosystems of assessment uh, with, with different perspectives that measure your, uh, um, your cognitive abilities, your emotional abilities, your uh, uh, physical abilities, and, and even your, uh, let's say, deeper psychological abilities to give you a kind of uh, digital uh, mirror to look at, right? So it may be you will, you will be measured by 300 factors. Uh, now, in the, in, the, in the moment, we are in transitory phase. And that transitory phase uh, requires some uh, ways of measuring that can be accessed by diversity of countries, by diversity of regions, that will be more better than just measuring, let's say, classical uh, uh, intellectual capacity or even memorizing ability. <laughs> so I think PISA is a very transitory form of measurement. And, and uh, Andreas himself recognizes it. He says uh, the evolution of assessment has been very poor uh, since 1950s. And uh, his uh, vision, for example, is to include emotional intelligence, uh, the ability to, to or the measure of empowerment or uh, or like proactive action. Yeah, but, the, the, but then they, they rejected him. When he tried to do that, many countries said, no, no, we don't want to do the social emotional evaluation. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's that's part of, uh, that, that is part of the story. This is where this rigidity that I was talking about, the institutional rigidity comes into play, including uh, the memory of what needs to be there, what is good, what works, what doesn't work. Yeah, so I, the, I, I always find it hard to <clears throat> to deal with uh, our human obsession with compartmentalization categories and and, and measurement. No, it's like for me, it's like Gabriel. I'm I'm completely with you. I'm completely with you. I also uh, because I work with uh, on the system level, I recognize that we need to create a bridge. Uh, unless we do we, we create that bridge, uh, the 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 system will just stay the same. So we need to offer some kind of transitory formats that gradually move out in that direction. I know that this is like a, a com compromise strategy is maybe sometimes the worst, uh, but uh, but uh, the the transition needs to happen somehow. And and uh, um, otherwise everyone will just, for example, if we move into digitally enhanced education that actually already allows us to create this, uh, let's say 300 factors measurement of creating a digital mirror for a student and in new ways, it's possible, but there are no algorithms because everything is measured in a very standardized way. So they just uh, digitalize everything that is there instead of 
using new metrics. So yeah, I, th I think uh, you know a lot of it has to do with doing away with uh, quantitative measurements. It's like when they ask you from one to ten, how are you feeling? It's like no, I can't tell you. It's, uh, I can't tell you how I'm feeling with a number. Uh, at the end of the day, we're going to have to rely on some more paradoxically. Uh, you know, analog forms of, of like portfolios and qualitative assessment, because if we right. if we're, if we're going to be reductionist to the point of numbers, we're always going to fail. It's a, it's a failed proposition. I, I I agree, but I also believe that uh, the, this will become and is becoming more subtle. So, for example, uh, last uh, weekend I was teaching um, in a um, I was teaching a group of adults in a in a more experimentative environment and one of the things that was present on the spot was neural interfaces so uh, some participants wore them voluntarily uh, to measure their levels of engagement their creativity and so on and if we have something like this it gives us actually a direct measurement of how someone is engaged or, in, in or AI that you mentioned before, like <clears throat> creating an expert system that can recognize patterns and can compare it right. with models, etc. There is definitely a future for that. Uh, yeah, I, I know that they, you you can paint uh, a darker future, like uh, uh, the Big Brother future or this Black Mirror kind of uh, dystopias. It is possible, and it's, dystopias are useful for us to to warn us about negative uh, effects. But uh, let's let's uh, think how we can use the opportunities, mm -hmm. and not only what are the threats. I will two two final questions. One is. You you just define yourself, and it's self-evident from from just browsing your work that you're a, you're a change maker. Um, mm -hmm. How do you feel about this modern day paradox that we seem to be reverting to some of the things that we know don't work, and we seem to be powerless to combat them, like Taliban going back, many of the things you mentioned about education. Uh, you know, populist governments, oppression in many parts of the world. How, how do you feel about that that unbelievable scenario that we're facing where things that should never happen again are resurfacing with uh, renewed strength? Well, uh, I think um, uh, part of the story is, is exactly what we have discussed a little bit earlier. The, uh, a certain failure of the Enlightenment uh, paradigm the Enlightenment paradigm had the idea that uh, uh, we will have progress, the progress will be done by spreading the reason or, or the rational mind across the world. And I, and I think this, uh, this is failing exactly where, where it should be failing because uh, people are emotional beings. Um, we need to embrace diversity and it needs to be recognized. We need to recognize that uh, there is spiritual dimension in our being and that was under-recognized for almost 100 years. So I think uh, that the, the, the reverse to a, a much more traditional uh, forms of, let's say, human organization, and, um, uh, and, and, uh, and other things that we see as a, as a kind of impossible uh, medieval kind of scenario, they are inevitable and, and inevitable uh, uh, process of transition. There is a void that has not been filled yet. And what happens is that one, before we, we create an answer that is needed, uh, we will go to this, let's say, uh, inefficient <laughs> answers from the past. Uh, this sometimes happens uh, with, with children and adults when they face some kind of trauma and they go to 
let's say, old scenarios that used to work when they were very young, for example. They don't work anymore because you grew up, but but you don't recognize this. Uh, or, or people try to go and, and drink alcohol, right? All of these are are uh, what what I call shock of the future. People yeah, facing, or, or like people longing for the for the Soviet Union where you live, for example. Exactly, exactly. It's it's all about that. It's 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 called the shock of the future. We are facing um, a future that is much more complex than anything we've seen before. We try to answer our challenges with simple answers. It 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 is not possible. We will have to learn. We will be pushed into learning. By, by the reality, or we will go there voluntarily. But before discovering what the next stage consciousness, what the next stage, uh, let's say, evolution uh, stage of the humanity calls from us, uh, it might be, let's say, a painful uh, process in between. But I think, uh, again, this is a transition phase. It's in the, it's, it's, it, it may last years, decades, even, even sometimes centuries. But I think uh, over the, the, the hundreds of years, as a species, we are evolving, becoming more beautiful, more sentient, more wise, more, uh, let's say, positive. positive uh, we, we are becoming gradually a positive force of change uh, for, for the globe, for, for the planet. Uh, but we need to discover how we can be that. And, and I think uh, if we approach everything, including education from that perspective, uh, we will see that there are so many opportunities and not just threats. Wonderful. Thank you. Final, final question. Um, suppose the genie comes out of the bottle and grants you one wish for the future of education. What, what would that wish be? And you're not allowed to say delete the hard drive of education. I took note of that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, genie. <laughs> well, I, I think that, uh, uh, well, well <laughs> it's a good answer, but I think uh, it's, a, it's a good question. But, uh, but I think uh, my, uh, something that I, I'm thinking about is that everyone needs to wake up to the realization that we are all lifelong learners, uh, that education is not equal to learning. Uh, but it could be a, a system that supports uh, lifelong learning and that uh, we are empowered to, to learn for life and, and to take every opportunity we have in life as learning opportunity. And if we wake up to that, then uh, we will start to have a totally different uh, uh, education system. Thank you, Pavel. That was super, super inspiring. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. You can find uh, Pavel's work all over the internet. As mentioned earlier in our conversation, we we will be posting links to, to his sites and, and reports on the page, but basically it's globaledufutures.org. Again, that is globaledufutures.org uh, for Global Education Futures, his main organization. Thank you, Pavel. Great pleasure. Thank you very much, Gabriel. Thanks for joining us. You can find uh, this and all past and future episodes at conversations.thelearnerspace.org. Once more, that is conversations.thelearnerspace.org. We strongly encourage you to go and browse uh, the page for each episode where you will find a complete summary of uh, the main, the, the salient points uh, of each of our conversations. 
as well as pointers to links and resources related to each of our guests. In this case today, there's invaluable information and pointers and links to what Pavel has been doing over the years and some of the wonderful papers and reports that truly uh, represent a roadmap for education and, and the future. Until the next one.